Please take your Bibles this evening and turn to Second Thessalonians. I was exciting, excited to um, chat with Matt before the service. I was mentioning to him that um, we'll, we'll be going next week as we finish Second Thessalonians this week into the book of Galatians. And I'm very excited. Galatians, uh, as a book of the Bible, had, has had more of an impact on my life than any other book um, that I've ever um, spent a great amount of time in. Uh, and so I'm very excited for the opportunity to share with you my passion uh, for that book and an opportunity to learn much, much that is needful for us as a body of believers. Second Thessalonians 3, we are finishing the epistle this evening with verses 16 through 18. The title of the message, Peace in the Storm of Life. Today is our final week in Second Thessalonians. And like the first epistle to this church, the overarching understanding of this church's position is that they were a church going through great trials. Tribulation, persecution, and even some internal strife. People had been martyred. There were controversies from within. There was attacking from without. And yet, through it all, the church had maintained fantastic faith and excellent testimony among the world. And Paul was um, commending them, encouraging them, and primarily comforting them. History and practicality bear record that Doing right isn't always easy. The path which Jesus Christ asks us to tread is not simply, as they say, a tiptoe through the tulips. It is, in fact, a path filled with hazards, pitfalls, struggles of many varieties. But we who are followers of Jesus Christ also understand that we are intended by God in the midst of these difficulties, in the midst of these struggles, we are intended by God to have peace. And that the circumstances which face us are not intended by God to be the basis of our peace. Our peace is not intended to fluctuate based upon what's going on in our lives. Our peace is intended to be a steady, rock-solid, bounded grounded peace. Not in the circumstances that are around us, but in the person and work of Jesus Christ and our trust in Him. And this evening we're going to explore this concept of peace as we close out this chapter. We're going to learn what peace is. We're going to learn where it comes from. We're going to learn why it matters. We're going to learn how to maintain it. And as we learn all of these things, I trust that we will be able to encourage ourselves and encourage one another in the Lord in, in our determination and our capacity to have peace in our own lives. We'll pick up in Second Thessalonians chapter 3, and let's just read verses 13, excuse me, 16 to 18 together. Now the Lord of peace himself give you peace always. By all means, the Lord be with you all. The salutation of Paul with mine own hand, which is the token in every epistle, so I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. 
We consider this concept of peace this evening because it is the concept that Paul closes the epistle with. Nearly the exact same way he closed his first epistle to this church, wishing upon them peace from the God of all peace. Now in 1 Thessalonians, the, the, the thrust of peace was not as evident. Peace was kind of a passing thought. But in this case, Paul really focuses on it. The Lord of peace give you peace always by all means. He desires that this peace would be always with them. He desires that this peace would be there under all circumstances. And he desires that this peace would come not from their circumstances, but from the Lord of peace. There's something very special about the way Paul expresses this desire here. In our King James Bible, we see that phrase, by all means. The usage of the word in the Greek carries with it the idea of similarity or by completion. Literally, the idea being that Paul is praying your life in any and every circumstance would reflect the peace that was and is exemplified in the life, ministry, and teaching of Jesus Christ. And that's kind of an exciting thing that, that Paul would wish that upon them all peace, all the time, in all circumstances and a peace from the God of peace by any means, in every circumstance, in every way would imply that Paul is desiring this for them because it can happen. Because we can live a life with this kind of peace. Uh, as we finish our time in the text, obviously the text is very brief this evening. We won't be spending much time teaching on it. We'll be spending most of the time just focusing on the idea of peace. But as we finish our time in the text in Second Thessalonians, we see um, Paul say his final words or introduce his final words by saying that he wrote this salutation with his own hand. Now, the reason for this was that most of Paul's epistles were written by what is called an amanuensis. An amanuensis would be a person who would uh, write what you are dictating. And so Paul would dictate with his mouth what he wanted written down and someone else would write it for him. And most of Paul's epistles were written this way. We know that there were a couple of Paul's epistles that were written entirely by his own hand. Uh, and it would seem to be that Philemon and Galatians, at least, were ones that were written by his own hand. But this is something that it seems as though was very difficult for Paul to do. And we don't know all the ins and outs of why this might be, but as we piece together some scriptures, it seems as though Paul had a problem with his eyes. And we don't exactly know if that's completely the case or, or what that might have been entirely, but, but it's possible that, that Paul had a hard time at, at least at a certain point in his ministry seeing properly. And it would likely be that, that, um, he would have needed someone else in order to make sure that there, that things were written well. He needed someone else to help him. That, that's a theory. There may be other ones as well. Uh, but, in this situation, um, seeing that Paul was not writing his own letters, it, it would not be difficult to imagine someone, perhaps many, would try to forge Paul's letters, would try to pass off a letter as being from Paul, because you didn't have to worry about Paul actually writing it, right? Because he used the manuensis. So they couldn't look at it and say, well, this isn't Paul's handwriting. Well, this isn't really... Um, because Paul didn't normally write it anyway. So perhaps it was that, that um, as a token of showing that all of these letters written by other men, amanuensis, 
um, were from Paul, were dictated by Paul, in order to authenticate his writings, Paul says that in every epistle that he sent out, he always wrote the final salutation himself. And that's what he's saying here. The salutation of Paul with mine own hand, which is the token in every epistle, so I write. Paul says, I am personally writing this salutation to you, the end, the, the benediction to you, the salutation, whatever it might be at the end. And he says, I'm going to do that, and I do do that in every epistle that I write. So if they were to receive an epistle and, and the, the courier says, this is from Paul for your church, and they, they pull out Second Thessalonians and they begin reading it, and of course it's not in Paul's handwriting, but it sounds like Paul, and uh, they get to the end and then they see the handwriting change. And they go, aha, <laughs> there's Paul's chicken scratch. That's him. Oh, now we know it's from him because that is unmistakably Paul's handwriting. And he says that that is what would happen in every epistle, a token that it is a Pauline epistle, was that Paul wrote the final salutation himself. Now, we spend the rest of our time together today. That kind of wraps up the book. I know it's a little anticlimactic there, but we spend the rest of our time together this evening on the topic of peace. And if we're going to do that, we need to answer several questions this evening. And what I'd like to do is just topically and practically speaking, walk through the concept, the biblical concept of peace. And the first question we're going to ask is this. What is true peace? What is true peace? Peace is an interesting concept and one which must encompass numerous ideas. We might be familiar with the Old Testament word for peace. It's the word shalom. As a matter of fact, when we get our prayer letters from missionary Bergman, they're always entitled, of course, he's a missionary to the Jews. Now he's in, in uh, I believe, North Carolina. But uh, he's a missionary to the Jews. And he always uh, has on the top of his letter, Shalom Keravim, which means well, uh, peace or, or hello, or it's a greeting, peace be with you, friends. The concept that this word carries in the Hebrew is one of safety, of one of happiness, of one of prosperity. Now, the word can be used in many contexts. It can mean physical happiness and safety. It can mean emotional happiness and safety, spiritual happiness and safety. But the context that we're going to focus on in this evening, the context of 2 Thessalonians 3, is definitely and unequivocally an inner peace, a spiritual peace. You notice Psalm 4.8 on the screen. It says this, I will both lay me down in peace and sleep. For thou, Lord, only makest me dwell in safety. In this context, the idea of peace is directly attributed to a state of the mind and a state of the heart. When a person knows he's being cared for, he's able to lay himself down in peace, to rest securely. We see this in our children, whereas mom and dad might stay up worrying or fretting or thinking about things. Last night I had trouble sleeping. I had um, things on my mind. And it, my, have you ever had one of those nights where your mind just won't shut off? And it's just like grinding and grinding and grinding. And, and next thing you know, you look at the clock and an hour's gone by. And you look at the clock and another hour's gone by. And, and you're not trying. You want to sleep, but your mind just won't let you sleep. You don't see that often with little children, do you? You don't. 
I, I've, I've never had my daughters come in. I've had them come in and say things like, the thunder scared me, or I've had things come in and say things like, Alethea bit me, or whatever it might be. But I've never had them come in and say, hey, Dad, I'm just, I'm just worried about tomorrow. I just, I really, I don't know how things are going to get done tomorrow. And they're not worried about tomorrow. Tomorrow is more eating, more playing, uh, more eating, more playing. That's, that's really it. That's, that, that's their to-do list. Uh, if, we, if we read out my daughter's to-do list, it would be eat, play, eat, play, fight over not taking a nap, eat, play, sleep. That, that would be their to-do list for tomorrow and Tuesday. You had church there on Tuesday night and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday. They don't have those cares so they can lay themselves down in peace because they feel that safety. They don't feel those cares. This is a mind and a heart that is at peace. They have confidence that they're cared for. They have confidence that they're safe. Psalm 4.8 presents peace as a state of security and safety. Consider with me also Psalm 38.3. The psalmist says, There is no soundness in my flesh because of thine anger, speaking to God. Neither is there any rest in my bones. And there's that word shalom, rest, because of my sin. Shalom here is translated rest and is contrasted in this passage with sin. The psalmist, as he considers the result of unconfessed sin in his life, he says that there is no peace in me because I have unconfessed sin. There's something between me and my God and I'm miserable because there's no peace. And I have no peace because there's sin in my life. As we consider this usage, as we carry it forward to the concept of spiritual peace, a rest, a security, a confidence, the psalmist says there can be none when there's sin in my life. This trend continues in Psalm 55, verse 18. The psalmist says, He hath delivered my soul in peace from the battle that was against me, for there were many with me. The psalmist here speaks of a battle. But you know, if you read the context, he's not speaking of a physical battle here. He's speaking of an enemy not who comes against him with swords and spears, but an enemy who came against him with his mouth. An enemy who spoke against him, who gossiped against him, who slandered him. The battle is in his spirit and against his spirit, not against the body. And again, the psalmist is confident in the midst of this that God will allow him to remain at peace, at rest, secure, and safe, confident, a spiritual peace in the midst of the battles of life. Now, it's time to get a little more specific still as we continue with this question, what is true peace? We've asked and seek to answer this question. And as we've done so, we've spoken of what, what we might say is inner peace or happiness or confidence. But the phrase inner peace, I don't know, I, I don't like that phrase. Do you not like that phrase? It it has with it a, a kind of a new age connotation. When I hear the phrase inner peace, I, I think of pretty much every pagan religion out there, the promise of every pagan religion out there. They're all seeking inner peace, inner stillness that will allow them to connect to a far more intimate element of their lives. And uh, all pagan religions are seeking this. They're seeking it through meditation. They're seeking it through substances. They're seeking it through 
um, material gain. They're seeking it through um, some sort of self-fulfillment when they've saved a tree or when they, they're seeking it in so many different ways. We're seeking peace. They seek an inner peace to connect with themselves. They seek an inner peace to connect with nature. They seek an inner peace to promote harmony, to promote balance. But all of these efforts serve to do little more than mask true peace, true spiritual peace. These efforts are seeking peace where peace will never fully be found. And that's why the question we ask is not just what is peace, but what is true peace? The world is seeking peace. The world wants peace. Every man, every woman is looking for that place of peace, of rest, of comfort, of fulfillment. And as we have looked at each of these verses in the Psalms this evening, what has been true in every context in which peace has been mentioned is that peace was never found in himself. The peace that he found was given to him by one who is greater than him one who is higher than him, one who is in control to the extent that he can grant us peace. And we're going to flesh this out a little bit more. First question, what is true peace? It's safety, it's comfort, it's rest, spiritually speaking. Question number two, where does true peace come from? Where does true peace come from? It makes sense. Does it not that true peace cannot be sourced in myself? Because I am not in complete control of my circumstances. Can a person have true, complete, unshakable peace where there's a possibility that things could crumble around him? I mean, things are going okay right now for my family and I. I was telling Matt, I'm starting to hear a knock in the engine of our van. Not a good sign. It's 198,000 miles on the van. Starting to hear a knock. Not not necessarily an an encouraging thing. Of course, uh, Murphy's Law dictates that it's right after I got brakes and I'm changing the timing belt and all that. It has to be that way. You have to put hundreds of dollars into your car before it dies, right? So, so, uh, but but if if my true peace is based upon circumstances, then then that that concern could shake me. If my true peace is based upon circumstances, then if if one of my dear children were to get sick, then I could lose peace. If I were to lose my wife, I could lose peace. If this church were to, God forbid, just, just crumble around me, I could lose peace. Because my peace is dictated by circumstances that are not under my control and really are not under control. Money can't give true peace because money can fail. Family can't give me true peace because my family can be lost. I can't conjure up true peace because I can falter. I can be deceived. I can misunderstand. If I'm looking for true peace inwardly, then my true peace ends when I fail. True peace must come from something outside of us. If I may put it this way, true peace can only be rooted in true control and in true security. That which is assured. 
that which is guaranteed. If true peace does indeed come from something that has true control, something that has true security, well then the world in which we live is a terrible place to find true peace, isn't it? The world in which we live doesn't have true security. Circumstances can offer a temporary degree of peace, but circumstances are ever-changing and a life that feels in control one minute can easily fall into chaos the next. So the world around us will say, well, pastor, if you're asking for true peace, which is complete safety, complete security, complete contentment, it's impossible. Because this world is really, everything's about playing the odds. You're either dealt a good hand or you're dealt a bad hand. And then some of you, some, some people can take a bad hand and turn it into a good hand and others take a good hand and they lose everything. And that's where the rubber meets the road. What we must understand is that true peace cannot be rooted in anything this world has to offer because everything that this world has to offer changes, falters, and fails. You, you trust people in your life. You love people. And you know what? The more people you trust and the more people you love, the more you're opening yourself up to be hurt. And we all know that. That with love comes vulnerability and with vulnerability comes pain. The circumstances of our lives are, are variable. What a blessing it is when, when we look at our families and we see health and we see happiness, but we all know that that's not guaranteed. There is no person, there is no structure, there is no institution of this world that is not susceptible to change and eventually to failure. So we recognize then that if we want true peace, we must go searching for true peace outside of ourselves and within the context of that which cannot change. Something that is absolutely dependable. Do you see where I'm going with this? If I were to give you a pop quiz, okay, pull out a pad and pencil and write down something that is unchangeable and absolutely 100% dependable. There's only one thing that could possibly go on that sheet of paper. True peace is rooted in a level of comfort, of safety, of rest that can only be secured by the God of the universe. Because only the God of the universe is unchanging. Only the God of the universe is absolutely Dependable. God said in Malachi 3 verse 6, I am the Lord. I change not. And He used that as the means by which to assure the sons of Jacob that they would not be consumed. God is unchanging and His unchanging nature assured Jacob that they would not be consumed away for to them God had made promises. God said this in Isaiah chapter 46, verses 9 and 10. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is none else. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times the things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. This is a God who is in control. He's in control of yesterday. He's in control of today. And He's in control of tomorrow. He declares the end from the beginning. He sees the end just as clearly as He sees the beginning. His purposes will stand throughout time, throughout circumstance. Nothing can thwart the purposes of our God. 
In God, there is a security that the world cannot offer. In God's promises, there is a potential for true peace because in God's promises, there is unchanging faithfulness. Zechariah rejoiced over the prophetic ministry of his son John. And as he did so, he said this in Luke 1, verses 76 to 79. He's talking to his son John and he says, And thou, child, shalt be called the prophet of the highest. For thou shalt go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation unto his people by the remission of their sins. Through the tender mercy of our God, whereby the day spring from on high hath visited us, to give light to them that sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Zechariah prophesied that his son would prepare the way for one who would visit and this one who would visit, this one who would appear, would give light to men and would lead men and women into a way of peace. Now we all know the one who would come, the one who John looked at and said, Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. This would be Jesus Christ Himself. And this is He who was spoken of in the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, which says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon His shoulder, and His name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. True peace can only come from God and from God alone. And true peace is found in the person of Jesus Christ. But peace is not just about someone being unchanging. Peace is about that unchanging person working to personally give you security, safety, rest, joy, and prosperity. See, it's not enough that there's an unchanging God in the heavens. It's not enough that this unchanging God in the heavens was manifest in flesh in the person and work of Jesus Christ. If Jesus has nothing to do with you, then you have nothing to do with peace. If you can't access Christ's peace, then Him coming, Him being God, Him being unchanging, Him being dependable really makes no difference, does it? Does God offer peace to such a man? Can man attain unto such peace in our lives? Jesus Christ came with a message. And the message which He told His disciples is found in John 10, verses 10 through 11. He said, The thief cometh not but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. But I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. Jesus told his disciples that he is the good shepherd. Security, protection, safety, happiness, rest. Does that sound like peace to you? It does to me. The psalmist described God as his shepherd in Psalm 23. Let me read it to you. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. 
Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for Thou art with me. Thy rod and Thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil. My cup runneth over. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. You know, that was written by a man at peace. A man who understood that his shepherd was leading him, was caring for him, was protecting him. That's what a shepherd does, doesn't he? Shepherd finds the food for the flock. Shepherd brings the flock to the food. Shepherd allows the flock to eat. And a shepherd protects the flock while they're eating. A shepherd brings the sheep back when they stray. A shepherd keeps the sheep healthy as best he can. That's the point of the shepherd. And Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. I give my life for the sheep. Four chapters after Jesus has promised to His disciples in John 10. In John 14, He says this in verse 27, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you. Not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. If it wasn't clear before, it is now, right? Jesus' promise is that He came to give you Peace. Not the kind of peace the world gives. What kind of peace is that? Well, temporary, fleeting, circumstantial. That's not what He came to give. He came to give you a peace that would keep your heart from being troubled or being afraid. Lasting peace. A peace that will preserve you. It's a peace that guards from fear. It's a peace that transcends circumstances. Two chapters later in John 16, Jesus would say, These things have I, I have spoken unto you, that in me ye might have peace. In the world ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Jesus says you can have peace, not because you're not going to have trouble if you're a Christian. You can have peace, not because bad things aren't going to happen to you. Not because I've... I've put a little divine bubble around you so that no one can hurt you or no one can steal from you or no one can take advantage of you or no one can um, uh, um, victimize you. Jesus said, in this world, surely you will have tribulation, but you can have peace in the midst because I have overcome the world. Jesus is the bringer of lasting, deep, and true peace that can only be found in the one who lives above circumstances. The one who transcends circumstances. Who is over all circumstances. Jesus Christ is the source of peace in God. What is true peace? True peace is safety, security, rest. Where does true peace come from? Well, it comes from something higher than us, beyond us. It comes from God. What true peace does God offer? He offers the lasting peace found in the person of Jesus Christ. How do we obtain true peace? It's question number four. True peace is an unwavering sense of security realized through the ministry of God's Son, Jesus Christ. How do we obtain this true peace? I'm going to give you three ways this evening that we obtain true peace. 
the first and most essential foundational step to true peace is accepting the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul said in Romans chapter 10, verse 15, How shall they preach except they be sent as it is written? How beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. It's called the gospel of peace. The evident first step to obtaining peace is to accept the gospel of peace. What is the gospel? Gospel literally means good news and it is good news. It's good news that's founded upon some bad news and the bad news is that we're all sinners, right? And as a sinner, you have offended the holiness of God. You're not a sinner because you have sinned. You sin because you are a sinner. You have a sickness. There's something deep inside of you. Something that you were born with. Something that you can't overcome. It's, it's, it's a very part of your fabric, of your being, of your nature to be sinful. I was at the jail this past Wednesday and I was explaining this to men and I explained it this way. The sins that we commit are symptoms of a deeper problem. In the same way that when you get sick, you get a runny nose or you have a fever. And when you realize that you're getting sick, you, you start, your nose starts running, you're blowing your nose and, and you feel your head and it's a little warm, you don't say, uh-oh, I have a fever, I need to fix my fever, right? The fever's not the problem, the runny nose is not the problem, those are symptoms of the problem. Those are symptoms of your body trying to fight something deeper, a virus, an infection. There's something going on inside that is manifesting itself outside. That's sin. When you lie, when you cheat, when you steal, and all have, because the Bible tells us all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. When you lust, when you covet, this is not the problem. These are the symptoms of the problem. The problem is deeper down. The problem is in your heart. The problem is that you're a sinner. And the wages, the payment of sin is death. Because you have sinned, you deserve death. Not just physical death, but separation from God forever. That's what spiritual death is. And so we have this problem, see, because we're sick. And we can't cure ourselves. We can try to mask all the symptoms. We can go to church and we can not swear and we can... We cannot uh, drink and we cannot steal and we can not do this and we cannot do that and we can add not to just about anything and we cannot do it. But that's not going to solve the problem because those are just symptoms of the problem. If I spend my whole life just wiping my nose trying to solve the problem of why my nose is running, it's not going to do any good because the problem isn't the nose running, the problem is something deeper. We're sinners. We have a problem and we can't solve that problem. So God is here, a holy God. We are here, sinful man. And there is no way for us to reconcile ourselves to God. But you know what? That's okay. And, and even better than okay. That, that's, that's a blessing. Because, see, if we could reconcile ourselves to God, then we'd have to. But since we can't, we have to trust somebody else to do it for us. So the Bible says that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son 
that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. God sent Jesus Christ, God in flesh, to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. Jesus came to this earth, lived a sinless life, died on the cross. And the Bible says that as Jesus died on the cross, God made Jesus to be sin for us. Literally, God took your sin and the punishment for your sin and He poured it out on Jesus Christ on the cross. He made Christ sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. So God took your sin and His wrath for it and poured it out on Christ. And then He took Christ's righteousness and made it freely available to all who would believe. And that is indeed the condition. The Bible says, If thou wilt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in thine heart that God hath raised Him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. If you're in this room today and you have never come to the point in your life where you've understood, where you've recognized that you're a sinner and you can't get yourself to heaven. Maybe you knew you were a sinner, but you've been trying to work your way to heaven by doing good things, uh, by getting baptized, by partaking in communion, by going to church, whatever it was. If you're here and you have been trying to work your way to God and you found out tonight that you can't do it and you've been trusting in something false. If you're sitting here tonight and you said, well, I never really realized I was a sinner before. Well, Jesus Christ said, I come not to call the righteous, but sinners unto repentance. You can't recognize that there's a cure until you realize that you're sick. You're not going to go looking for a cure until you're sick. Maybe you've realized for the first time this evening you're sick. You have a sin problem. Whatever it might be, if you have never accepted Christ as your Savior, if you have never become a disciple of Jesus Christ, if you have never died to self to live unto Christ, to become a follower, would you do that tonight? Would you even there in the silence of these few moments tell the Lord that you know that you're a sinner? That you know the penalty of sin is separation from God, but that you believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for you and has risen from the dead? And that you accept the gift that Jesus Christ offers of salvation by grace through faith? That's the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus' promise, be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. When we accept Jesus Christ, that is when we overcome the world as well. So, how do we find peace? Well, first and foremost, foundationally, there will be no peace until you accept the Gospel of Peace. Once you've accepted the gospel of peace, Romans 5, 1. Um, Matt, we're going to skip a few slides there. <laughs> I, I got a little bit uh, um, carried away there. So skip to point two if you would, Matt. I don't know if you're there yet, but uh, two slides up. How do we uh, obtain true peace? Number one, accept the gospel. Number two, know, obey, and trust the Scriptures. So you're a believer. You've accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. You're there. You, you, you have peace with God. You're, you're founded on that. But maybe you're still struggling with peace in circumstances. Maybe you're still struggling with peace in your life. Well, step number two, know, obey, and trust the Scriptures. In Psalm 119, 165, the Bible says, Great peace have they which love thy law and nothing shall offend them. 
the psalmist here is not saying that nothing can ever bother you if you love the Word of God. Nothing can ever hurt you or make you sad. We, we saw that from Jesus' teaching. In this world, you will have tribulation. But nothing can break the peace that rests in the heart of one who is obeying and believing the Word of God. Nothing can break the reliance that a man has upon God when his heart is stayed on the things of God. Isaiah 26.3 I used it this afternoon at the nursing home. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee because he trusteth in thee. When our mind is stayed upon God, we are kept in perfect peace. Great peace have they which love thy law. Why? Because the law of God stays our hearts and our minds on God. And when our hearts and our minds are stayed on God, the Bible says we are at peace. The world the circumstances of this world, what they are trying to do or attempting to do or what we are tempted to do is allow the cares of this world to take our eyes off of God. And as our eyes turn from God, they turn from the only thing that can give us perfect peace. So when we are struggling with peace, there's one thing that we can know and what we can know is that somehow, in some way, something has diverted our eyes from that which is right before us. From the reality that God is in control. From the reality that God is dictating circumstances. From the reality that no matter what has just happened, it wasn't unforeseen to God. That God knows. Now, as we've talked about this concept of knowing and obeying the Word of God, uh, we remember from the Psalms, the psalmist said that his sin caused him to, be, to, to fail to be at rest with God. That if we have known sin in our lives and we are not obeying the Word of God and we are not walking with God and we are not in fellowship with God, then this in the heart of a believer is naturally going to incline us unto a lack of peace because we are walking contrary to the God of peace. When I am walking in fellowship with God... I'm going the direction of the God of peace. When I choose to, to disobey God, God continues to go His way and I've turned the other way. And now I'm not walking with the God of peace, I'm walking away from the God of peace. Is it any wonder that we lack peace when we're walking away from the God of peace? But thou wilt keep Him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee. How do we obtain true peace? Well, we accept the gospel of Jesus Christ. How do we obtain true peace? Well, we know, we obey, we trust the Scriptures. Third and finally, how do we obtain true peace? We pray in thanksgiving. We talked about this at the nursing home as well this afternoon. How do we obtain true peace? We pray in thanksgiving. Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, Be careful for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. When there are things in your life that are trying to strip your mind away from focusing on God, away from true peace, 
if you will take those cares, those worries, those difficulties, and you will take them off of yourself, don't carry it yourself, and you will lay that burden at the feet of Jesus Christ in prayer with thanksgiving, the Bible says Jesus will take that burden and he will replace it with a peace which passes all understanding. We want true peace. How do we obtain true peace? Well, we accept the gospel. We read, we obey, we know, we trust the scriptures. And we pray in thanksgiving. One final question to ask before we close this evening. What hinders true peace? I've already mentioned it briefly. What hinders true peace? To understand what hinders it, we only need to look at the opposite of what gives true peace, right? If faith brings about peace, if knowing and obeying the Word of God brings peace, well then faithfulness, faithlessness excuse me, hinders peace. Faithlessness hinders peace. Not just faith into salvation, but faith in everyday circumstances that surround us bring us peace. If you don't have peace, maybe it's a faith problem. Peace comes through knowing, obeying, and trusting God's Word. Naturally then, we would expect that disobedience, sin, as I mentioned, hinders our peace. When we disobey the Word of God, we fall under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. But we also fall prey to the condemnation of the devil, don't we? The, the Holy Spirit is telling us that was wrong. You need to confess that sin. But then if we continue in that sin, then Satan sees a stronghold. He sees a foothold and he begins to knock on your door and say, hey, hey, you've got real problems. Maybe you're not a Christian. Maybe God could never possibly use you. Look at you. You can't get over that. Look at you. You can't do that. Look at you. God could never use you. Trying to get you to forget the fact that God doesn't need you, that God, <laughs> that nothing you have of God is of you anyway. It's all God's grace. And, but what He is trying to get you to do is focus on the wrong things. And so sin in our lives will hinder our peace, not just because of the Holy Spirit's conviction, but through the, through the condemnation of the devil. This false condemnation that we make ourselves susceptible to through disobedience. So faithlessness can hinder peace. Disobedience can hinder peace. Prayerlessness can hinder peace. If prayer is the believer's divinely ordained means of taking your burdens and laying them at the feet of the God of the universe, if prayer is the divinely ordained means by which the peace of God which passes all understanding can keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus, then naturally, if you're not taking your burdens to God in prayer, you might expect that you're just going to keep carrying those burdens yourself. You might expect that you're not finding the peace that God has desired for you because instead of taking those burdens and laying them at the feet of Jesus, you're holding those burdens on your back and you're walking around with them and you're just allowing yourself to be weighed down with them. As we close this evening, the question that you need to ask is, do you have true peace? Are there areas of your life where your peace has been stripped from you? Are you a believer? 
If not, you, you have no peace, no, no true peace. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ by grace through faith, are you carrying burdens that, that you're not meant to carry? Are you living under the condemnation of the devil when Paul so clearly tells us in Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit, who told us in 1 John, if our heart condemn us, God is greater than our heart. If our heart condemn us not, then have we confidence toward God. God doesn't want us living under condemnation of sin. That's what God saved us from through His Son, Jesus Christ. God doesn't want us living under the weight of our circumstances. In this world, you may have tribulation, but be of good cheer. He's overcome the world. God doesn't want us fretting over things. Jesus Christ says, if a son asks his father for a piece of bread, will his father give him a stone or a scorpion? How much more does your father desire to give you the things that you ask of him? Do you have true peace this evening? Paul said in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, Now the Lord of peace Himself give you peace always, by all means. May that be the testimony of our hearts in our church this evening as well. Let's pray.